Welcome to the Talking Tall Rounds series, brought to you by the Seidel and Arnold Miller Family Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute at Cleveland Clinic. Good morning to everyone and welcome to this week's installment of the Heart, Vascular, and Thoracic Institute's Tall Rounds. This week we're focusing on peripheral arterial disease, or PAD as it's known, and its impact on minority communities. And this is apropos for peripheral arterial disease month of September. I have no disclosures for this discussion today. Peripheral arterial disease sits at the intersectionality of social determinants of health, that is low health literacy within the patient population and issues of insurance and healthcare system access. Within the healthcare system, there are issues such as cultural competency and implicit bias. And then when we look at team-based care, we understand that these patients have a need for high intensity care. However, they're frequently admitted to uh, smaller institutions that don't have the resources. And finally, there are public policy issues. And we've been working on the Amputation Reduction Compassion Act as it moves its way through congressional legislation process. It's impossible to discuss peripheral arterial disease without reflecting upon COVID which has really shined a spotlight on this issue of disparities within minority populations and poor white Americans. And peripheral arterial disease sits at the heart of this. We understand that Native Americans, Black Americans, Hispanic Americans, and poor white Americans are disproportionately impacted by peripheral arterial disease. They're underdiagnosed, undertreated, and as such suffer worse outcomes. These are data from Phil Goodney and the Dartmouth Group, which describe amputation rates from a CMS data set. One can see here that the Native American population has a four times higher rate of amputation relative to white Americans, black Americans, a twice higher rate of amputation, quite significant. And even Hispanics, even though they have a lower atherosclerotic burden, higher rates of amputation. Despite the fact that amputations overall are on a decline, we see that within the diabetic population, amputations of a total minor and major significance continue to increase. And this supports the need for team-based care and prevention. Hispanic and black patients present with more advanced CLTI, and we can see this publication from Jihad Mustafa describing more progressive disease in emergency department visits. And from a VA system study, we see that African-American and Hispanic pop, uh, patients present with more significant CLTI at a more delayed state. And it's not just for amputation reduction that it's important to identify peripheral arterial disease. When we look at these patients, their five-year mortality is higher than many of the common cancers. Quite important that we identify peripheral arterial disease and reduce their cerebrovascular and their cardiovascular event rates. This is really the potential to help this patient population. Despite the fact that I'm speaking about peripheral arterial disease and its disproportionate impact on minorities, we also understand that this is a socioeconomic disease. And as we look across the geography of the United States, we understand that the most impoverished areas of the United States are the areas where the highest rates of amputation 
occur, oftentimes in poor rural whites. When one looks at the Area Deprivation Index, or ADI, which is a uh, risk stratification for socioeconomic burden, looking at the Northeast Ohio market, we can see that the Cleveland Clinic is surrounded by a densely impoverished area. Uh, included within that area are the racial demographics of poor white Americans, black Americans, and Hispanic Americans, disproportionately vulnerable to peripheral arterial disease, cerebrovascular and cardiovascular disease morbidity. And these data suggest that within common county lines, one can see over the census tract a 30-year discrepancy in life expectancy, largely due to cardiovascular disease. And so this is an illustration that I've used within the COVID pandemic. Many times we speak the words that we're all in the same storm. However, we're all in the same storm with different vessels. And there's a different adaptive reserve for many communities that surround our Cleveland Clinic facility. And so PAD has a PR problem. We have low awareness of what the disease is, what it does, how to prevent it, how to appropriately treat it, and finally, the low use of the ankle brachial index in high-risk patients. And so it is with this challenging problem that we require a functional limb preservation team, which is who we present to you this morning to discuss the issues around the management of peripheral arterial disease. The care teams that were involved in the following case were podiatry, vascular surgery, interventional and general cardiology, the infectious disease, and the nephrology team. The case I'm presenting today is a 61-year-old male with hypertension, type 1 diabetes, gastric cancer, end-stage renal disease of hemodialysis with a chronic limb-threatening ischemia, with a Y5 score of 322 clinical stage 4, presenting with the gangrenous first and second toe. Initially, he underwent SFA and popliteal intervention and an hallux amputation. However, his hallux amputation will never healed, therefore angiographic intervention was planned to improve blood flow. Angiography findings, however, demonstrated very poor arterial runoff to the foot as a result of his end-stage renal disease and diabetes. He continued to have a non-healing wound, and since there were no options to restore direct inline arterial flow to the foot in any angiosome, the patient underwent a planned staged deep vein arterialization. During stage one, a right below the knee arterial popliteal artery to posterior tibial bypass with a reverse saphenous vein graft was performed with a sequential vein bypass off the arterial bypass to the posterior tibial vein. This was followed by a stage two arterialization with a balloon angioplasty of the posterior tibial vein. Patient subsequently underwent a TMA and his wound started to heal. However, despite aggressive podiatry-led wound care and diligent surveillance, incomplete wound healing was observed and venous duplex demonstrated stenosis of the arterialized posterior tibial vein. Therefore, the patient was scheduled to undergo an intervention. During the right lower extremity angiogram, a high-grade stenosis at the venous bypass to the recipient posterior tibial vein was seen, and a percutaneous transluminal angioplasty of the posterior tibial vein with a 5-millimeter balloon was performed at the vein bypass to the native vein recipient um, vein. Uh, 
Completion angiogram demonstrated brisk flow through that the arterial bypass, the venous bypass into the posterior tibial vein. The patient had a palpable pulse and a strong Doppler signal into the foot at the completion of the case. Subsequently, he underwent TMA revision and debridement, with now the wound is healing with a palpable PT pulse at the ankle of the arterialized vein. Yeah, hi everyone. I'm Marcel. I'm one of the vascular medicine fellows. Uh, so we're, I'm going to talk to you today about a lifelong disease of peripheral artery. Our gentleman here is a 67-year-old African-American male patient with previous history of hypertension, 30-pack year history of smoking, peripheral artery disease, stroke, PPH, COPD, and cervical radiculopathy. His story started in 2009 when he started to complain of bilateral uh, thigh pain every time he walks. It progressed year after year until 2012 when his pain started to become so severe that he, has, he walks 10 steps and he has to stop from that severe pain. He came to our clinic in 2012, had a PVR where it showed mild, uh, moderate disease in both of his right and lower left extremities uh, at rest and also with exercise. Uh, subsequently, he had an angiogram showing a right superficial femoral artery that required stents in the proximal and mid-distal and angioplasty of the right profunda and left uh, popliteal artery. This is a successful artery uh, canalization and stenting after the stent, and you can see a uh, good flow afterwards, and the patient had significant improvement of his symptoms after, after this procedure. Unfortunate, uh, he was started on aspirin 81 milligrams and one month of uh, prasugrel, uh, atorvastatin 40 milligrams, and to continue his antihypertensive medication of amlodipine alizinopril. Unfortunately, in 2013, the patient developed a right-sided weakness uh, having a stroke on the MRI at the, uh, with a lacunar infarct. He was started on uh, clopidogrel 75 milligrams along with his antihypertensive medication and aspirin. And between 2013 and 2017, he had multiple admissions to the hospital for uh, TIA versus a recrudescence of his old infarct and was under workup for his seizure. He had PT, physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy follow-up in the outpatient, uh, cardiology and neurology follow-up for a possible cardioembolic uh, disease or uh, also for the seizure workup and TIAs. It wasn't until 2021 when he started to notice uh, claudication coming back again in his right lower extremity. But this time, every time he walks 50 steps, he started to complain of this pain. It doesn't hinder him or uh, make him stop walking, but he, he goes on a slow pace. There's no resting pain, no swelling, no discoloration. He has some shortness of breath with it that was uh, underwent uh, echocardiogram, nuclear stress test that was deemed to be non-ischemic and was attributed to his ongoing smoking and uh, COPD. These were his medications on his presentation to our clinic, uh, atorvastatin, 80 milligrams, corvitolol, uh, clopidogrel, and aspirin. Uh, he had another PVR, which shows a right lower extremity of mild disease with uh, post-exercise uh, progressing to a moderate disease. Uh, therefore, an ultrasound of the arterial uh, was done for him, pre-stent, loss of flow and uh, pulse waveform and stent uh, uh, indicating an occlusion, post-stent parvastatus uh, waveform. Uh, at that time in the clinic, we asked him to quit smoking and referred him to the smoking cessation clinic. 
uh, continue aspirin. St we stopped the clopidogrel and started him on an antithrombotic rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams twice a day. We switch, switched his atorvastatin to rosuvastatin with, the, with his LTL being 117. And in the next clinic, if he didn't achieve a goal, we wanted to add either izinamibe or ivalucumab. Uh, and we offered uh, salicylazole, but was deferred to the next visit, along with the uh, proce uh, procedure or interventions and uh, supervised exercise therapy, uh, especially with him undergoing a uh, C-spine surgery. Good morning, and thank you for the invitation to talk today. Uh, the only disclosure I have is that I'm not an endovascular specialist per se. I'm an interventional cardiologist specializing in complex coronary intervention, and I'm going to share with you some of the, the parallels in the field and why I find this to be such a fascinating arena. Uh, hopefully you'll find this just as exciting as I do. Um, so what are the skill sets that we use in complex coronary intervention and how can they be utilized in endovascular intervention? So number one, we spend all day accessing people's radial arteries, both conventionally in the wrist or on the back of the hand in the distal snuff box area. We use ultrasound to do this. So it's the same thing to get access to a tibial vessel. Um, we're very experienced using 014 wires, 018 wires, 035 wires, the same stuff that you would use in endovascular intervention. Uh, we're very, very comfortable using coaxial microcatheter techniques to deliver equipment and wires uh, to cross uh, recalcitrant lesions. And lastly, we're very, very comfortable with being subintimal in a coronary artery, which makes it very, very comfortable being subintimal in a peripheral artery. And I'll show you some examples of how these uh, skill sets overlap. So in a coronary artery, the goal is ultimately to cross the lesion with a wire, and this can be done by advancing a wire conventionally through the anterograde side or through the retrograde side with a combination of wires, balloons, catheters in both directions. And this is a, a, a very rapidly evolving field uh, that was originally developed pr primarily in Japan and has exploded across the, uh, the world at this point. Um, and there are expert centers um, all over the country and all over the world now that specialize in these techniques. Um, and we can utilize some of this to uh, help our patients with peripheral arterial disease as well. This is an example of a right coronary artery total occlusion uh, case that I did many years ago, um, where we've advanced a guide wire and a catheter through the left coronary system through a septal collateral channel retrograde. Uh, I have knuckled wires in both directions. And you can see up here, I have a retrograde wire being advanced through the right coronary artery into uh, the guide catheter to uh, basically perform a loop and uh, deliver stents. Um, this is amazing that this can be done. This was something that was completely impossible when I was a fellow only 15 years ago, yet we do this three to four a week uh, now at the Cleveland Clinic. So it, it's pretty fascinating how this has evolved over time. Um, it's not without its risk. Um, this is a case that I wish was done in early in my career, but I'll have to admit this was not that long ago uh, stiff wires advanced into occluded coronary arteries can sometimes exit, and when they exit, they're in the pericardium. Once that happens, you can have a potentially catastrophic event uh, causing cardiac tamponade and cardiogenic shock. Um, so this has to be recognized and corrected immediately if, if this were to happen. And this is one of the big differences between coronary total occlusion and endovascular total occlusion because that uh, peripheral bed is a lot more forgiving for these type of events. So this is a case that I'll share with you as a patient who was referred for a critical limb ischemia who has a total uh, popliteal artery extending from, uh, right here is the cap, um, and it extends all the way to the tibial perineal trunk. So there's a long segment uh, total occlusion, uh, something that we wouldn't realistically be able to wire or integrate. Um, he's got excellent three-vessel runoff distally. 
So what we did with him is we advanced a wire subintimally uh, just to get purchased into the vessel. That, and that's what this picture on the left shows. And then once we have that wire in place, we come in on the retrograde side. So we can see here that there's a nice beak in the TP trunk to access. So what we do is we use ultrasound to get into uh, uh, one of the tibial arteries and um, use this to advance a guide wire uh, up the tibial artery retrograde. Once we have the wire to that beak that I pointed out, we advance a microcatheter to support the wire. And then you have to understand which wire to use where, but the idea here is to use a wire that can form a knuckle like what we see here, and you advance the knuckle through the occluded segment. There's no way to wire this or understand exactly the course of the vessel, but the knuckle will find the vessel for you. And now the idea here is to try to advance the knuckle all the way to the antegrade knuckle that we created earlier in the case. And once you've done that, then we uh, deploy the same techniques that we use in the coronaries uh, to complete the case. So we have overlapping knuckle wires, balloon this space to create a common channel that's subintimal, and then use a very steerable guide wire, which you see in the right panel, to make the final connection. Once you've made this connection, you can deliver stents. And you can see here, we've got the stents deployed in the popliteal artery. We've preserved three vessel runoff to the foot, and the patient had resolution of his symptoms. Um, so just a nice example of how we use all the same techniques, all the same wires, all the same catheters uh, to achieve a slightly different goal. But the idea is here to, to safely navigate through an occluded segment of an artery. Uh, so in conclusion, I would say the contemporary coronary CTO-PCI techniques are quite applicable for endovascular intervention. I think that peripheral intervention is honestly quite a bit more forgiving. And I honestly use this area as a way to understand how to use wires in the coronary. It's a lot safer for me to understand what a wire can and cannot do in the peripheral bed as opposed to the coronary bed. Uh, and ultimately, one of the, the limiting steps in both coronary and peripheral is calcification. And we'll talk a little bit more about that moving forward. But calcification really limits the efficacy and the effectiveness of all of these treatments, both in the coronaries as well in the peripheral world. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. Like what you heard? Visit Tall Rounds online at clevelandclinic.org slash tallrounds and subscribe for free access to more education on the go.